Hello, and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. This week, how can church investors step up pressure on corporate polluters to combat climate change? And we hear about G.A. Studdock Kennedy, or Woodbine Willie, the World War I chaplain. In this week's paper, we have an in-depth report on Christianity in China, a feature on how the church reacted to the Windrush generation, reports on the quarterfinals of the Church Times Cricket Cup, and much more. If you don't subscribe, you can try 10 issues for £10. Visit churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. First, the Methodist Conference is meeting in Nottingham. One of the items on the agenda is how the church's investment managers are doing in pressuring companies to reduce their carbon emissions, in line with the Paris Agreement on climate change. If companies are too slow to change, should investors try to bring about change from the inside, or should they say enough is enough and disinvest? I spoke to Stephen Beer, who manages the church's investment portfolio. Yeah, well, so last year we had um, memorials, as they're called, at conference and a notice in motion that encouraged us to look again at what we, how we analyse fossil fuel companies and the pace of change and whether they are aligning themselves with the Paris Agreement to keep climate change, temperature change below two degrees, well below two. This year we were required to report to conference on our progress. So. In addition to the normal report that comes out with all the ethical investment work we're doing, there's a separate report on climate change and climate change work, and that summarises quite a lot of work we've been doing over the past year. We've had to look at the various climate change scenarios that are out there, because what we're trying to say is, a company like BP or Shell, how can you tell whether an oil company today is aligned with an objective to keep average temperature rises below two degrees over a multi-decade timeline. How can you tell that? And actually, the answer is it's not very easy to do. You know, what a company's doing now could have quite a lot of implications for what's happening in 2050, for example. We went right back to first principles, and we've had climate change policies since 2009, and we've been thinking about carbon emissions since 2002 at least. We went right back to first base, and we looked at the scenarios that are out there for climate change temperature change and what does that mean for fossil fuel use and then we tried to work out okay how can we then apply that to individual companies and uh, we developed a methodology to do that five criteria where we look at at which we look at for for each company and that whole process is just getting to that point taken us the last year and now we're into um, implementation phase I mean those five criteria are are, um, looking at the current asset mix of a company its exposure to oil reserves gas reserves coal for example and including, say, um, in renewables. Um, we also want to look at its capital expenditure plans linked to new assets, finding new oil fields, new coal seams, for example. We're also looking at corporate strategy. Is the company aligning itself from the top with a new world, a low emissions world? And what do we think about that? How that includes lobbying, for example, what's its lobbying position? Um, we also look at its commitment to alternative energy sources, what's its investment to renewables? And then is it keeping its own house in order? So how is it managing its own direct emissions, both from you know, getting oil, say, out of the ground and then also then transporting it to um, where consumers then, de- then demand it? And how are these oil companies doing in terms of aligning with the Paris Agreement? I would love to be able to tell you that, the answer to that uh, now, but it's early days. We don't, the answer is we don't know. We don't know exactly, and nobody really does. But there are interesting signs. You can see that probably the most progressive out there uh, would include Shell and Total, both basically because they have been looking to ahead in the future. They've been projecting what their emissions are. And they've also been projecting something called scope three emissions, which is 
actually the emissions from using their products. So if we go to a garage and put some petrol in our car, what are the emissions from when we drive off? And Shell is actually looking at what those emissions might be and has set an ambition for what those emissions might be in the future. Now the thing about that is, it's, as it stands, that is a big move from last year from that, co from that company and a big move from, say, five years ago. It's not enough yet, probably, because you know an ambition is not a target and it's sort of aligned with the pace of change in society so it's a bit chicken and egg and we've still yet to assess shell properly on our five criteria but really that kind of brings us to the, the the way we really look at climate change really what we should be concerned about is you know the people who are the firms that are demanding these fossil fuels not just those that are supplying you wrote for us back in february in our comment mm. section on exactly this could you say a bit more about that targeting those firms mm. who people might not think of as corporate polluters, but who actually a lot of their business entails quite mm. a lot of carbon emissions. Yeah, so the point I was making was, you know, we look at portfolios, look at their carbon footprint overall, and our ambition is to keep that carbon footprint below the, the average and to keep it over time falling. And the carbon footprint of an oil and gas company might, might be smaller than you might think, because the emissions being generated from the oil, say, that they're producing is actually coming out in the power generating companies, transport companies, shipping, heavy industry. So those are the companies that are actually demanding fossil fuels. Now, the supply, someone will always be meeting that demand on the supply side, uh, whether it's Shell or whether it's a, a state oil company, someone will be meeting the demand unless the demand changes. And so the future development, if you like, for the human race in terms of keeping the planet sustainable has to be focused on the demand for these, for these fuels. Can we reduce it substantially? Now you can see in projections what would need to be done, big, and big increase in renewables, maybe even nuclear power, but we need greater efficiency, greater technological development and, and innovation in those, it, from the demand side. So that involves putting pressure on companies who might be in sectors like um, airlines or haulage companies or people like that who are... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the, on the, on the electricity generation side, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, there is an increasing move to uh, electric cars, and that's great. As we plug more electric cars into the national grid, we're increasing demand for energy. Well, we need the generators themselves to be generating more from renewable sources. Otherwise, we're just... We're demanding more from coal-fired power stations, if you like. That might be more efficient than putting petrol in our cars, but it doesn't solve the ultimate problem. So we exclude a couple of electricity generators from investment on those grounds and have done for some years. But yeah, it now means we've got to look at transport companies um, of all types, haulage being a good example, airlines being one. If we still want airline companies to exist, then we need to be saying, well, you need lower emissions from elsewhere. And you also need airlines buying lighter planes, more efficient planes, etc. So, you know, the thing is, it's all joined up. And this is just on the ethics side. It's joined up as, as we integrate ethics with investment, the whole thing's joined together. You know, by living as we are today unsustainably, we create problems for the future. So that floats right back into what we might expect from investment returns long term. So these things do join up. And then the Church of England's General Synod is going to be debating its own policy mm. around um, climate change and fossil fuel investment. Where, where do the CFB and the Church Commissioners stand in relation to each other? Do they have different strategies? I think there's a lot of similarity. 
you know, we had our big debate in conference last year on climate change. I think Church of England seems to be having that big debate, the debate about divestment this year. So it'd be interesting to see what comes out of that debate and in General Synod. You know, we're founding members in the Transition Pathway Initiative the Church of England established to look at how well aligned companies are with a low-carbon world. So in that sense, you know, there's a lot of common ground. We, we have a similar voting policy where we're voting together on carbon disclosure from companies and taking a dim view on those that don't disclose their carbon emissions, do it well. I suppose because we had our debate last year, we've had a year where we've been working quite intensively on fossil fuel companies, on scenarios, on the methodology. So it'll be interesting to see coming out of that. You know, we've got a particular approach that we're taking, which factors in some of the transition pathway initiative analysis, but involves a lot of other things as well. So there is a little bit of a difference there, in, in, I think, in the way that we're approaching it. There isn't a number machine one can, a model one can produce. I think we'd all accept this, that you can plug in the data and outcomes, you know, the green light or the red light on each individual company. It's a matter of judgment, and we've just broken it down in a slightly different way about how we're going to come, come to that judgment. What I'd say about divestment, it's a one-shot strategy. You can say to a company, we're going to sell, sell out if you don't do X. If they don't do X, you've got a choice and sell. Once you've sold, you're not in the room in these debates. You're not an owner of that company anymore. You don't get to vote for, for directors. You don't get to vote on how the remuneration policy is, is set. You don't get to vote in a shareholder resolution calling for more action. You don't get in the room and, and having conversation with the chief exec. So those sort of things don't normally happen once, once you're no longer an owner. So we have always said from the beginning that there will be divestment will be part of our approach because we want our portfolios to reflect, in our case, central finance will want to reflect where Methodism as a whole is on this issue. But at the same time, while doing that, engagement has a lot of merit and you have seen some change in some of these companies. So the debate is how quick is that change going to take place? Is now the time to call it? You know, even conference last year, the, the view wasn't expressed that we should sell oil and gas shares in 2018. So you know, no one thinks in that sense now's the time. We've got to see how well engagement works. But it's a one, one-shot approach. Another thing I said in the opinion piece for Church Times, you know, you can do that and our conscience can be solved by that but even when if it is right to divest, we've got to be dealing with that demand side. So we've got to see similar approaches across the board. We've got to integrate everything we're doing in the way that we use fuel and energy as church in all different spheres and how our investment policies deal with those demand side companies. Now's the time to be passing shareholder resolutions in those companies and focusing resource in that area to get them to change. And then you'll see if future projections of energy use look different, you'll start to see the supply side shift quicker, I'd say. G.A. Studdock Kennedy was the most famous World War I chaplain. He was known as Woodbine Willie for his practice of giving out Woodbine cigarettes to troops, along with copies of the New Testament. Studdock Kennedy's book, The Hardest Part, was published in 1918. It asked where God was to be found in the carnage of the Western Front. To mark the centenary of the end of the First World War, and the original publication of The Hardest Part, a new critical edition has just been published by SCM Press. It's edited by Thomas O'Loughlin, Professor of Historical Theology at Nottingham University, and Stuart Bell, Honorary Research Fellow at St John's College, Durham. I spoke to them about the significance and influence of Studdock Kennedy. I asked Stuart Bell first to give some background on his life. 
when war broke out, he was a, a vicar in Worcester, he was serving quite a poor parish there, and he was one of thousands, literally thousands of clergy, who immediately wanted to go out and be chaplains to the troops. The bishops held them back because they said, who will look after the parishes if you all go? But eventually they managed to arrange cover in Worcester and um, Stella Kennedy went out to France in very late 1915. He got his nickname because as the troops were leaving the base there, the army base at Rouen, he gave New Testaments, but he also gave uh, Woodbines, which today would seem rather shocking, but was not thought of as being uh, at all unusual uh, back in 1915. And, and as well as giving Woodbines, he gave copies of the New Testament, is that right? Yeah, copies of the New Testament. He spoke to soldiers. He was a great at engaging with them. He was a great orator. He would gather groups around him. He seems quite genuinely to have been loved by all the people he met. He was asked at some stage, what are the qualities that a chaplain must have? And he said, a heart full of love and a satchel full of Woodbines. He certainly had that ability to engage with all different strata of society, not least because he'd been serving in, in a, what we might call a slum parish in Worcester and was very used to um, the working class men who most clergy never encountered. Uh, can you say a bit about the religious landscape of England at the time? I mean, in, in the book it comes across that many of the men, I mean, they've been perhaps had contact with the church, but there's not necessarily a very deep Christian faith. We need to distinguish between what we might call practicing Christians and those who had a basic belief, something like a third to 40% of the population attended church or chapel fairly regularly. There will be a bias towards women, certainly in that number, and also the class distinctions. But if you went up to 100 people in 1914 and said, do you believe in God? 98, 99% would have said yes. And those that believed in it but never darkened the doors of a church would have been grossly offended if their faith had been questioned, that kind of uh, almost folk religion. And they believed in God and they believed in the afterlife. And I think that had a big impact on the way they approached the whole danger of war. And obviously at the time, the I mean, there were bishops like the Bishop of London at the time offering theological justifications for the war, saying that this was part of God's mission to overcome evil. It was far from just winning at Ingram. The almost universal view, certainly in the Church of England, was this was a morally justifiable cause. It was right against might. It was necessary to um, respond to the invasion of Belgium, a brave little Belgium. There was none of the equivocation that we've seen um, since the Second World War uh, about the rightness of Britain's military engagement. And obviously being a, a chaplain on the front line is quite an extreme conditions, isn't it? It's people who are facing death sometimes within the next hours or days. So there must have been quite a, a shift in his ministry. Yes. I mean, many chaplains couldn't cope and they were sent home very quickly. Chaplains, as today, didn't come to a moral judgment about the war particularly, although he was fully supportive of it. But it was this pastoral care that was the key element, which made him stand out, I think, from many others, perhaps. Could you say a bit about what some of the core job of an army chaplain was? The core task of the chaplain, from the chaplain's point of view, was to be the presence of religion and the presence of the church out in the trenches. From the army's point of view, the chaplain was part of the morale structure, support services that helped the soldiers cope with the problems of war. So there's tension because the chaplains sometimes perceive themselves very much in church terms. Sometimes they're very much aware of what the army perceives them to be. Sometimes the army perceives them as morale officers, and sometimes it perceives them in a more pastoral setting. So. There's no simple answer to what is the role of a chaplain. 
But there is an interesting thing in that in the aftermath of the First World War, particularly in books like Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That, it just became a bland statement. The chaplains were a useless bunch. They sat back at base. Uh, they lived the life of the officer class and religion had no place. And people like Studdard Kennedy are the proof that that was just a massive slur on the, the work and ministry of a vast number of men, many of whom died. But there's a curious thing in that a lot of the book is situated on the assault upon De Messines Ridge on the 1st of June 1917 and the subsequent days. When we were doing the research for this book, right up in, in Ostervern's Wood Cemetery, there is the grave of the Reverend Clifford Reed, who was actually killed out on the very front line on the very day that Sturdard Kennedy bases his, his reflection. And I think, if anything, the book gives the lie to a terrible historical slur. And it's worth adding, of course, that Robert Graves, in a later edition, wrote that he generated his he wrote his book to generate as much income as possible. He was surprised that he was never taken to court for some of the things he said. And he admitted that he produced a pastiche of all the negative stuff that was circulating in the disillusionment of the 1920s uh, in order to create a sensationalist volume. I mean, another of the, the core tasks that comes across in the book is helping the injured, I mean, moving them on stretchers and also burying the dead. And that's a very seems to be a very important part of the chaplain's job on the front line. That again brings up this double aspect. The actual act of burying the dead is the traditional work of mercy that one should bury the dead. And you see that in the way that Studdard Kennedy speaks about it. But from the army's point of view, he is also there to keep a record of burials as part of the the, the, the whole burial record process. Yeah, I mean, something else that comes across is he talks about sense of humour and how a priest has to have a sense of humour. And often it's quite self-deprecatory as well. Um, he talks about himself in, in quite negative terms at times because he wants to engage with with the men and, and find dark humour. You need some form of humour in the horror of those Western Front trenches um, just to relieve what's going on. And it, it also, within the book, serves the theological purpose because you have to laugh at certain things precisely because there is a an incompleteness in human understanding. He is aware that if you pursue the ideal of complete human understanding, you end up knowing nothing and mad. So you have to you have to live with the fractured incompleteness of existence and its stupidity. And the reaction to stupidity is you just laugh at it. Can we just talk a bit about the hardest part? Why have you produced this this edition? How, how did this come about? I'd been kind of looking at Stella Kennedy for about the last 15 years. I was doing some research uh, yeah, 15 years ago on um, how the First World War affected the particular group of Anglican people. And I found Stella Kennedy and I thought, wow, this theology is amazing. And most people seem to have ignored it entirely, perhaps because he wasn't seen as being a proper theologian. He'd been widely ignored um, in a PhD thesis at Birmingham, looking at how the First World War affected people's faith and looked again then um, at Stuart Kennedy's advocacy of a God who shares in human suffering. And it was through the external examiner for that that Tom and I became acquainted and the book proposal came out of that. I don't know if Tom wants to take that a bit further. Number one, the book has been virtually unobtainable for 90 years. There was a reprint in the 1920s. It was printed very poorly. 
When Sir Kennedy did it, he wasn't able to put in the notes that I'm sure he would have liked to have put in. And secondly, he made an awful lot of assumptions about both Christian faith, knowledge of the Bible, and indeed knowledge of the First World War that no reader today has. We both became convinced that the hardest part is a Christian classic. And by a Christian classic, we mean a book that one goes back to. And even though it's maybe a hundred or several hundred years old, it sharpens the way you ask your own questions. And then your own questions are led onto an, into a new place through reading that book. So we said, this book needs to be known. This book is still a valuable. It's not just a curiosity of the First World War, which it is. It's not just a museum piece of the First World War, which it is, but it's actually a real piece. It is a classic of theology. And just as no one would ever doubt the need for new editions of Augustine or Aquinas or Cranmer, we realised we need a new edition. But when we started on the new edition, we realised we had to give it the full critical edition treatment, not only footnotes, but explanatory essays. We also discovered strange things, like, for instance, we realised that he uses the format of here is my reflection in the actual moment when I am confronting evil, literally crashing about me in the form of he's sheltering in a dugout and there's shells landing on top of it. But it's actually built up on years of careful reading and research. And this was a hypothesis. And then, lo and behold, after we had almost finished the book, getting it ready for the press, a manuscript of the hardest part, older than the text he printed, was suddenly discovered in the Army Chaplains Museum. And here was manuscript evidence proving some of the hypotheses we were putting forward. So we realised that this is this is not just a few thoughts he wrote on Messine's Ridge. It's the result of years of careful reflection, but brought to a pinnacle in confronting the stupidity, waste and evil, he calls war incarnate evil, of the actual events of Messine's Ridge. Can we say a bit about his theological ideas? I mean, the core seems to be this idea of the, the suffering God as opposed to the kind of distant almighty God upon the throne. Um, this is quite controversial at the time. It's not only uh, controversial at the time, it's still controversial for many because the idea of a, of a God who is a, is, is a perfect engine beyond the universe is, is a very appealing one. Studdard Kennedy has to confront that on several issues, not just not just in terms of how do you still believe in a God when there's slaughter around you, but how do you believe in a God when you are confronted with an evolving universe? Studdard Kennedy is reacting not just to the immediate evils of war, but to the sheer accidental quality of just finding ourselves in existence and that we are in a, in a universe that is evolving. And so he sees both the creation, the whole of the creation, the events of human life as confronting us with a God who must look at the creation with loving pity. And the expression of that loving pity is that if we want to see what God is like, we look into the face of the suffering Jesus. And he does wrestle a lot. Well, he, he's very critical of, of a lot of ideas of omnipotence, of this all-powerful God controlling all things, who wills war. And of course, 
um, the average soldier took a very literal view of the traditional idea of omnipotence. So God must have intended it. It's a classic case of a private who says, I can no longer believe in a God who would stop that artillery shell landing on me, but refuses to do so. That's really the key to the whole question. And that's why many of the men went for the idea of fatalism, because it was better to believe a bullet might have your name metaphorically written on it than to believe everything was purely random, because that was really a, a recipe for chaos, really, if, if everything was entirely random. So fatalism was better than believing that God intended you to die. God had decided who got shot. There's a part in the, in the chapter God and the Church where he... He really reflects on how he thinks the church has failed to teach sort of meaningful theology or this idea of the suffering God and that, that people have been left perhaps without the spiritual resources they need in the face of war. Would you, would you say that's fair? Yes, I think it is. He, he confronts a constant problem that faces preachers. How much do you actually address problems or do you say, oh, well, if that's not your problem, I won't raise it for you. And what Studdard Kennedy says is people are asking the questions internally, even though they may not be giving voice to them. And therefore, one of the things the church must do is to address the great questions, not just the questions that are being presented in words to them. And so he meets another chaplain. The chaplain says, don't don't decry a sort of a version of jailhouse religion, because it at least gets people to pray. And isn't surely any religion better than no religion? Studdard Kennedy says, no, false religion is worse than no religion. And the task of the church is not to prop up false religion, but to have the resources to allow people come to some sort of mature faith that allows them to ask these questions and ask them from within the resources of faith. And he, he says in that chapter everywhere, the followers of Christ are found outside the church. That seems quite a radical statement. It is, and it's one of those areas where he's taken up later by later 20th century theologians. Later 20th century theologians would use phrases like anonymous Christianity. Remember that for Studdard Kennedy, the spirit is active very consciously. He is very conscious the spirit is active in every human heart, not just in the hearts of those who are visibly in the church. And so he sees the spirit leading people, whether they're in the church or not. And that's one of the areas where he anticipates a major strand of all modern theology. Could we say a bit more about how he's influenced modern theology? I mean, Jürgen Moltmann was influenced by Studdard Kennedy, particularly this idea of the suffering God. The interesting thing is, of course, that um, probably Moltmann's most famous book is The Crucified God. But he hadn't discovered Studdard Kennedy uh, when he um, wrote The Crucified God, it was only one of his later publications that uh, Maltman had by then discovered him. And when he's talking to uh, a postgrad student in Germany a few years ago, um, he said, I was deeply impressed by him because he was a chaplain in the trenches, not in the gazebos. He developed an understanding of the suffering God and he understood how God must feel in World War One. Uh, and perhaps had Maltman not rediscovered Sir Kennedy and um, quite a lot of other people, for example, Desmond Tutu, would not have discovered um, Stuart Kennedy's advocacy of a God who shares in suffering, which was clearly pertinent um, in the suffering of the uh, struggle in South Africa before the fall of apartheid. But equally, while Stuart Kennedy is most famous for his contribution to this whole question of our image of God and our image of God as this sort of distant, omnipotent sovereign who just doesn't do anything, could, but then doesn't do anything. He is also 
working through many other problems. For instance, there's a little giveaway line showing that he is aware of all the problems that are being thrown up by modern German biblical criticism in the first decade of the 20th century. Britain was, was lagging far behind. There was almost a sort of a, a willful neglect. If we don't look at these problems, they'll go away. And yet he's saying we've got to confront what it means to say the Bible says. We have to confront what it means to say belief is founded on the Bible. And he's asking all these difficult questions, which are as alive today for many believers as they were in 1914. One could go on and say the same thing about, for instance, it's in the most recent liturgical reform of the Church of England, common worship. Studdard Kennedy has a feast day on the 8th of March, but equally he generates some of the theology that underpins common worship. His influence is far greater than the actual lines we can trace at this day. I think it's worth saying that he was largely ignored as a theologian because in that day um, the theologians were in the Oxbridge colleges and, and that was it. Whereas today we expect certainly that every person ordained ministry will be a reflective theological practitioner and we hope our congregations reflect theologically on the world around them and come to their own views. A hundred years ago theological understanding was handed down from above as it were uh, and so Sir Kennedy's theology was, was totally ignored by the establishment probably until Moulton came along quite frankly because an ordinary parish priest one who writes poems full of dialect not be taken credibly as a source of theological understanding. A hundred years ago, most people would have defined belief in terms of the acceptance of certain religious beliefs, you know, ticking off boxes on the creed. Whereas for Sutter Kennedy, faith is a pilgrimage. And he has the memorable throwaway line at the end of one of his, he's just buried someone. He picks up his shovel and he says, I'm off. I have to continue following Christ. So that sense that faith is a journey rather than a body of accepted ideas, I think that is a, where he speaks very much to our situation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.